Mark chapter 6, we're going through the gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. And we're going to look at a passage today that I trust you'll find um, encouraging and helpful. Just kind of bring you up to date in what was transpiring, bringing us to this passage in Mark 6. Uh, after the death of John the Baptist, which was a traumatic uh, experience there, um, and at the same time, it coincided with the disciples completing their first Galilean preaching ministry without Jesus being with them. He had sent them out. They're coming back to report on what happened in their mission work, their evangelistic work. John the Baptist had been killed. And so the Lord sought to find a place to retreat. He asked uh, them, let's, let's get away. We need to debrief. You know, we need to kind of unwind and rest was the word he used. And yet in trying to escape to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the people followed them. Multitudes of people followed them. And as he was moved with compassion, he ministered to those people. At the end of the day, as it was closing, day was drawing to a close, uh, the, the people were hungry and the disciples suggested that they send them away to find something to eat. But instead, Jesus said, why don't you feed them? And Jesus fed those people on just five loaves of bread and two fishes. Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children and had 12 baskets of leftovers. And that brings us to where we're going to begin reading today. And I'd invite you, if you're able to stand, to stand with us for the reading of the Word of God in Mark chapter 6. Beginning in verse 44, where the word of God says, And they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. Verse 45. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away... He departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea. And would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship. And the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves, beyond measure, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. As we often find in the Bible, not always to this degree, 
There is so much in this passage that we would like to look at. We'll spend more time on some of it than others. But I want us to look at this passage together. And let's pray and ask for God's help. All right, Father, we pray that you would help us today as we study the Word of God. Help us to be attentive. Help me as I seek to proclaim, to deliver your Word. Lord, help us to be hungry for truth. Help us to receive with meekness the engrafted Word that's able to save our souls. And may your Word have free course among us and may... You be glorified in it. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. As we prepare just to get into this passage, I just want to mention a couple of things, kind of in the way of introduction. As you're reading through the Gospels, you often see what I would call recurring patterns, things that are happening more than once. And for for instance, it's obvious you see Jesus addressing the needs of people. That's what Jesus did. He cared about people. He had compassion toward people. But another thing you see in this passage that you see numerous times in the Gospels is after he did that, he gathered his disciples together, those closest to him, prepared to go to another location, spend more time with them. In verse 45, it says, straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent the people away. Now I think this is like a a good reminder for all of us, and that is Jesus loves everyone, but he has a special relationship with those who are closest followers of Jesus Christ. That was the true in the New Testament, and it's true today. And this may strike you as being a little strange, but, but think with me about this. People seem to think or want to think that Jesus has the same relationship and the same fellowship with those who are careless and disobedient in their spiritual walk as he would with those who closely follow him and obey him. But that is not taught in the Bible. It never has been that way and it's not that way now. As a matter of fact, when Jesus brought his disciples here close to spend time with them, which he will do before the evening is out, he sent the people away. Now, it wasn't because he didn't like the people. It's just that's the way you see him working in the Gospels. He cared about those people. But please get this. His most intimate time in the Gospels was not just with the masses. It was with those who were committed to following and obeying him. And it's still true today. So we see that he brought his disciples aside together. A third thing that we'll notice here, and then we'll get in more of the main part of the message. And that's found in verse 46 where it says, And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. Jesus is going to send the masses away to go home. He's going to send his disciples across the Sea of Galilee, where he will meet them in the middle of the night. But he went to a secluded place that he could pray and spend time with his Father. He's, in Matthew record, Matthew's record of what we're just reading about here, Matthew 14, it says this, He went up into a mountain apart to pray, and when the evening was come, he was there alone. What a lesson for all of us today. You know, think about this. If Jesus needed 
private, private time alone to be with the Father. Don't you think we need time alone to be with the Father? I mean, it's good to fellowship together. It's good to come and corporately worship God. It's good to even pray together. But Jesus said, when you pray, enter into your closet and shut the door. And pray to your Father, which is in secret. And that's not what this message is about, but it's in the text. And I just want to say today, you know, put that somewhere in your mind where you can go back and think about that later. We, we need to do the same thing that Jesus did. And by the way, the lessons here are very simple, but I think they're profound. If we're going to spend time alone with the Lord, we have to separate ourselves from people and responsibilities. Now you say, well, I'm just too, too busy to do that. Well, Jesus was pretty busy too. And yet he did it because it was necessary. And we need a place to retreat to. You know, it may be to your closet. I've had some actual physical closets that I've gone to before and made a special time or place of prayer. It may be to a, some a park bench where you just go up and just find a place where nobody's really around. It may be in your car. I find, I find a lot of times I can control more what's going on in the car than I can most any other place. But, but make a time and make a place where it's just you and Jesus. And if you're sitting and listening to me today and that's not a part of your regular routine, then say, I'm gonna, if Jesus did this, if he needed this, if he's the, if he's the example, I'm gonna do this as well. Now we get to this, this familiar encounter with this storm that we see here in Mark chapter six. And it says that Jesus in verse 47 was alone on the land And he saw them, the disciples, in the Sea of Galilee, toiling and rowing. They're rowing, but they're rowing against the wind. They're rowing into a headwind. For the wind was contrary unto them. So here we have these disciples in another storm. Now, if if you've been with us, and you could think backwards a few weeks, maybe a month or two, uh, we've already covered one, let's look at Mark chapter 4, one time where these disciples were in a storm previous to this. In Mark chapter 4, just a couple of verses, if you're looking there, look in verse 35. It says, And the same day, when the even was come, he saith unto them, to the disciples, Let us pass over unto the other side. In this occasion, he was in the boat with them. Although, when the storm got really bad, he was taking a nap. But still... He, he was with them. We had this great storm. And if you look in verse 37 of Mark 4, it says, And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. The boat is not just taking on water. And if you're ever out in a boat, you know just the sound of that is kind of unnerving. You're taking on water. But the boat was getting full of water. So these disciples have been here before. They're out there on the sea. They're rowing and rowing and rowing. Um, I think it's Matthew's gospel tells us they had rowed, by the time Jesus met them out there, about three miles. But they're in a headwind rowing in the middle of the night. Now, I don't know if you ever think like this, but I think about this, this kind of stuff a lot of times. I'm wondering, I wonder what they were talking about. I wonder if they were questioning Jesus. 
Didn't he know there was a storm going to be out here? You follow what I'm saying? That's the way we do things, you know. Why did, why did the Lord let me go through this? But it, either way, we see that they're in this storm. And so what I'd like to do this morning is look at several lessons, both for them and also for us, can be found in this voyage. And the first one is this. Mountaintop experiences are wonderful. They just saw the feeding of 5,000 men with a few biscuits and sardines. 5,000 men. What an experience. But the lesson is this. Mountaintop experiences are a part of the journey, but for them and for us, life also has its valleys. And here they are, not even 24 hours later, from that wonderful mountaintop, they're in this, this valley of fear. And, and, and you know what it is? It's, a, it's really a test. It's a time of testing. So first lesson is mountaintops are good, but that's not all that's in life. It's amazing how sometimes we go through life, we love the victories and we love it when we're on the mountaintop, but we wonder why do we have to have these valleys? It's called life. Amen. The only place there is where there are no sorrows or difficulties or disappointments or heartaches is heaven. We're going there, but we're not there yet. The second thing we see in this, and I mentioned it, kind of referred to it just now, but they were in this boat and they were in this storm because Jesus sent them there. Look in verse 45, it's very clear. He constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side. Now, why were they in the boat and why were they in the middle of the Sea of Galilee? Because Jesus sent them there. People have these, these strange ideas sometimes based on human reasoning, but not based on the evidence of God's truth. And their ideas are, you know, why, why would God let this happen to me? Didn't, didn't God know what this was going to be like? And the truth of the matter is, God uses difficult times. God, for, for the most part, God doesn't just use victories to make us more like Jesus Christ. He uses difficulties and trials and problems to make us more like what He wants us to be. Even Jesus Himself, after He was baptized, the Bible says immediately He was led of the Spirit in the wilderness, into the wilderness to be tested or tempted of the devil. And so... Jesus, if you may be in a storm today, I know some people that are. They're, they're going through a great trial of affliction. Maybe a physical problem. Maybe a family problem. I know numerous people that are. It doesn't mean that Jesus is not with you. It doesn't mean necessarily that you've disobeyed Him. It may be that you're there while you're doing exactly what He wants you to do. A third thing I see in this passage is found in verse 48 where it says, and he saw them toiling and rowing. He saw them. They were, as I said, rowing into a headwind and they were not making any progress. And he was doing what they, exactly what the Lord wanted them to do. But you know what they did not have any idea of? They did not, I'm confident in saying this. They had no idea they were being watched. Right? That's what the Bible says. He, was, he, he saw them. He, he was watching them. He, he had his eyes on them. And I just want to say today, 
If you're going through a struggle or when you go through a struggle, don't think for a moment that Jesus doesn't know where you are. He sees the struggles we're going through. He saw them toiling and toiling. And I know people might think, well, then why did he, if he saw them, why did he let it happen? You know, some of those things are only for God to answer. But God has his reasons and God has his purposes. And Jesus sees what we're going... By the way, what was he doing? He wasn't just observing. He wasn't just sitting on the sidelines saying, isn't this great? They think they're going down. This is a wonderful thing to watch. Wish I had some popcorn. I and mean, that's not what he's doing. You know what he's doing? He's praying for him. He's praying. He's in prayer. So what's the application for our life? Jesus knows what we go through. And if he sees every sparrow that falls, and he does... He knows what you're going through today. And not only does he know what you're going through, he's praying for you. You can't hear him praying, but the Bible speaks clearly. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession. It's good to pray for people, isn't it? It's good to know people are praying for us. I'm encouraged when somebody says, I'm praying for you. I need it. And I'm really encouraged to know that Jesus is praying for us today. I believe that. Don't you believe that? The Bible says also in verse 48, another just a tidbit to think about, verse 48. It says it was about the fourth watch of the night. Now what does that mean, the fourth watch of the night? That that would be the three-hour time period just before daylight. It's from about 3 a.m. to about 6 a.m. They're out there rowing. And they're struggling. And they're exhausted. And Jesus is watching them. And Jesus is in prayer. And they'd been struggling against this weather all night. And it was at the fourth watch when Jesus came to them. Now, some people in this room will be able to relate to what I'm about to say. Maybe some not so much. But I have found, and I know others have found... That sometimes when you're going through a deep valley, the most difficult times to to, to deal with it are in the hours in the middle of the night. I personally have felt this more than once in my life. If I can just make it till the sun comes up, I know it'll be better. That we find that same sentiment found in other places in the Bible. You know, when, when Paul and his companions... We're, we're on that voyage going toward Rome in Acts chapter 27. The crew said this. It says this about the crew. They wished for the day. If, if we could just see some daylight. The psalmist said, weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. Here's the point. He, Jesus does not always come to us when we think it's best. But he will come to us when he knows it's best. He came to them. And sometimes He comes to us when it seems like it's as dark as it could ever be. And don't lose hope because Jesus is probably in the neighborhood. The next thing I want to see in verse 48, it says this. This is a a very fascinating phrase to me and we've preached on this before. But it says in verse 48, He came to them walking upon the sea and would have passed by them. He would have passed 
by them. This is not the only time we find this kind of language in the Bible. Another place is Luke 24. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus had risen from the dead. It was the day of his resurrection. There were two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus joined them as they walked on the road to Emmaus, but he kept his identity uh, from them. They didn't know who they were talking to, who it was. And as they neared their village, this is what it says. He made as he would, if he would go further. Imagine this. Jesus walking with you, but acting as though he was not going to stop at your house. Imagine Jesus walking near you in the storm, but according to the scripture, he would have passed by. And so the question comes to my mind, why? Why would, why would he do this? And I only have one logical, to me, explanation, and that is this. He wanted them to cry out to him. He wanted them to invite him to stay with them at Emmaus. And when they invited him, he went into their house. And when they, when they reached out to him, he came into the boat. Now listen to me, don't miss this. He wants the same for us. He wants us to want him. I mean, if he wanted to, he could force himself into any life here. If he wanted to, I mean, he could body slam anybody in this room and say, this is what you're going to do, whether you like it or not. Sometimes I'd like to do that. <laughs> but he's not going to do that. He wants you to want Him. And He may bring things into your life to bring you to the end of yourself. He may bring things in your life to get you to the place where you'll finally say, I need you, Lord. I want you in my life. But He's not going to force Himself into any life. He would have passed by. He wants us to walk with Him and fellowship with Him because we want to. And because we want to please Him. And I just want to emphasize this to those who might be here this morning that are not saved. You've never been born again. You've never personally been transformed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He will make many efforts. I mean, he, you may not understand this. You may not believe this. You may think this is a reach. But it could be that it's His providence today that you're sitting where you're sitting and hearing what you're hearing. Because He wants you to know Him. He wants you to be born of God. He wants you to go to heaven one day. He doesn't want you to die in your sins. And you say, well, He's never really done much for me. Could I remind you that over 2,000 years ago, He voluntarily... Jesus Christ voluntarily came to this earth to live among sinful men, but He was always without sin. And eventually went to the cross and died on the cross and shed His blood and went through a death that none of us can really imagine. And He hung there and died in your place because God loves you. He's reached out to you in every way. He's given us the truth to communicate with us. But we must humble ourselves. We must come to Him in faith. We must receive Him. And often people just ignore Him. I'm just here to tell you today, all who come to Him, He will in no wise cast out. You must come to Him in faith. You must come to Him receiving the gift of eternal life. 
All these things I think are so interesting in this passage of Scripture. Verse 48 says, He came and walked. He came to them walking. Imagine that. Walking upon the sea. A reminder of who God is. Who Jesus is. And it's a reminder to me that anything that comes our way, the storms of life, they're all under His feet. I mean, He... It, you know, I was reading this yesterday, I think, um, in the Old Testament prophet Nahum. And I was thinking about the storm that's about to hit, you know, the southern coast, the east coast. But Nahum said this, the Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm. He's over the storms, friend. I've, I've watched the prognosticators, you have too, I'm sure, about the track it's going to take. It's going to hit Florida, go across Florida. It's going to hit Florida, maybe go up Florida. It's going to, it may reach a Category 2. It may reach a Category 3. This morning it has reached a Category 5. The truth of the matter is, they don't really know, but I know who knows. God knows. He has His way. And whatever happens in life, the God that we love and the God that we serve, everything is under His feet. Be assured of that. Now, when he got there, in verse 49, it says, When they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. So they didn't initially understand, recognize who he was. But he spoke to them. I love the language of verse 50. Words, simple words, he talked with them. Don't you know that was comforting? And he spoke words of comfort. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship. And the wind ceased. For the next few moments, I want to focus on the last part of this text that we read. And that is the amazement of the disciples. I find it fascinating in verse 51 where it says, They were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. The the word sore means exceeding great. It means beyond being amazed. They were sore amazed, astonished in themselves. And then it says beyond measure. Immeasurable, exceeding, surpassing. And then finally it says there in verse 51, and wondered. They were in wonderment. Now, when I read that, stay with me this morning. When I read that, you know, it seems like it's expressing awe. You know, awe at him. They were, they were, they wondered. They were amazed. They were sore amazed. And what he, what did he do? He, he, quieted the storm. He walked on the water. He stopped the wind. But there's an expression right after that in verse 52 that says, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves. Now that doesn't necessarily sound like a positive comment, does it to you? They considered not the miracle of the loaves. It's almost as if the, the, the writer in Mark is saying 
the, the reason they had this wonderment is because they just forgot what they had just seen. I mean, this happened at three in the morning, four in the morning. The, 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 the multitudes were fed the previous afternoon. I mean, that's, that's a brief period of time. And he says that, again, the language of the Bible is they considered not the miracle of the loaves. It's after, it was like they were surprised at what God could do. They had seen him calm, stop, corms, uh, have storms that were calm before. They had witnessed this miraculous feeding. They saw him walk on the water. But it says they considered not the miracle of the loaves. Considered not means they didn't bring it to mind. They didn't connect the dots. They didn't figure this into their reasoning. They were blown away by what Jesus did, walking on the water, etc., as if they'd never seen him do anything before. It's like they'd forgotten it. They'd already forgotten it. And to me, this is you say, well, what does this mean? I want to tell you what I think it means. I think it means they had been given another test. And once again, they didn't, it, they, they may have passed it, but they certainly didn't ace it. It might have been a D minus at best. You're, you say, why do you base that on? First of all, I base it on the fact that the feeding of the 5,000 was a test. Remember, we talked about this last week or week before last. In John's gospel, Jesus directly said to Philip, you feed these people. And the Bible says, this he said to prove him. It was a test. Jesus told him to do this to see how he would respond. And it was like he set him up. He gave him a pop quiz. It's going to be a pop quiz. They weren't ready for it. I want you to feed these people. And they failed. Now in this storm, in this storm, they're terrified, they're frustrated, they, they don't know what's going to happen, and in explaining their wonderment, it says they considered not the miracle of the loaves. It seems, it seems to me that at least partially, they're at fault with the way they're responding to this. They weren't taking the miracle of the five, feeding of the 5,000 into account as they navigated this storm. Now, we, you may say, historically, why does this really matter? I want, I want to talk about practically why it matters, and that is this. God wants us to learn lessons in the storms of life. And they just went through such a miraculous thing to take a lunch, a, a, a lad's little lunch, and feed more people than live within 20 miles of here or 15 miles of here and fed them all. And now all of a sudden they're in a storm and it's like all of a sudden they forgot how powerful God is, what God can do. Then notice the last phrase of the verse, for their heart was hardened. You know, if this was not in the Bible, if it was not the word of God, I'd say, why did you have to put such a negative thing on such a great story? <laughs> but I'm not the author. I didn't write it. God wrote it. Their heart was hardened. Now stay with me. Keep in mind, it's three in the morning. Jesus just fed these multitudes a few hours previous. Now they're going through a storm, and here's what's missing. What's missing 
Is their heart trusting in Him? Like it should. And their heart was hardened. Now the word hardened, you know, could mean a lot of things. You know, maybe you're thinking of like a petrified wood or something. That's pretty hard. But the word actually means like calloused. It's hardened. It's like skin hardens. It's calloused. And when something is calloused, that means it's hardened. Men in this room or people who work in construction, they know what it is to get your thumb or your finger calloused. It's hardened. Things that would normally you would feel, things normally might inflict pain, don't because it's become so calloused. And that's the very word he's describing here. Not to the pagan world, not to those who he sent away, to those closest to him. Their heart had become hardened, had become calloused. They weren't opposed to Jesus, they weren't anti-Christ. Those were not apostates who turned away from Christ. These were his closest followers. And yet their hearts had already begun to harden. You know, the feeding, here's what the lesson, the feeding of the 5,000 should have produced like a, a, a growth in their faith, a platform from which they could have more faith and have a better response, a better reaction. We can't prevent trials. We can't go through life and say, I don't want any hardships. I don't want any, you can't do that. They're going to come. I talked to someone just recently that's going through a great valley. And, and they can't change the circumstances. But I said this to them. It's a test for you. It's a trial. And it's about our faith. Let me say to you today, please don't miss this. It's simple, but it's important. You know what pleases God more than anything? More than anything in the world. You know what pleases Him? When we trust Him. When we trust Him. Not just trusting Him for salvation, but in the affairs of our life, in the difficulties of our life, in the problems. He wants us to trust Him. You say, well, if He'd just get me out of this, I'd trust Him. He wants you to trust Him while you're in it. It's easy to trust Him when nothing's going wrong, isn't it? I guess it would be. I don't know what that would be like. but You know what it means? They weren't being sensitive to Him. They were calloused. They weren't being sensitive to the fact that he, He's faithful. He just brought us out of a wonderful, miraculous event. We can trust Him for this. The same thing is true in our lives. And one of the amazing things to me about this story is this. How soon their heart was already starting to harden. Right? And I'm going to speculate a little bit. When we get to heaven, if I'm wrong, bring me the proof and I'll admit it, okay? I doubt if they knew their heart was getting harder. I doubt if they knew it. And I think if we could have had a little microphone in that boat while they're rowing for hours against the wind, I think we'd heard all kinds of belly aching and complaining. Why? Because I think they were Baptists. (laughs) Because that's what we do in trials a lot of times. 
rather than trust in the Lord. And I don't want, if I could have my way, I'd never have another trial in my life. But we're probably going to have some. But shame on us if we don't see enough of God working in previous trials that when they come, we say, you know, we can trust God for this. We can trust God in this. Remember what He did before? Remember how He helped us out before when we didn't think there was a way out and He helped us out? We can trust Him in this. What a reminder to keep our hearts. The writer of Proverbs chapter 4, keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. Now there's a lot of stuff in this passage. I said that introduction. There's really too many to cover adequately in one sermon. And it's a, great, it's a great passage. I hope you'll take more than just this from it. But it ends to me with this important message. And that is, where is your heart? Where is your heart today? Is your heart tender to the things of God? Is your heart receptive? Is it perceptive? Is your heart discerning? Is your heart spiritually discerning? Is your heart trusting? Or is your heart anxious and worried and fretful? God has something better for us than that. Is your heart abiding in Him? Trusting Him? I could never say with an honest heart, every time I've ever had a trial, I just trusted God completely and I cannot say that. But you know what I can say? He is deserving of our absolute trust. And He can be trusted completely. And very frequently, very often I should say in our life, we come through a time where we've just been fearful and fretful. And we say, look what God did. Look how God brought us through. That's the way God is. So here's a, here's a case where they're out in the sea and the storm is against them and Jesus shows up walking on the water and He helped them. He does that. But then He said, Mark says about it, Mark's comment about it, is basically they'd forgotten to trust and depend upon God. We do the same thing. We do the same thing. If you're a child of God, if you're you're saved, if you've been born again, if you know Christ in a real way, would you just take a moment today and just say, is my heart hardening? Is my heart calloused? Is my heart insensitive? Where's my heart at? Because you can fix everything else, but if you don't fix your heart, you're going to have a problem. How's the heart? Maybe today you say, Lord, I want, I want to have a sensitive heart. I want, to, I, don't want to be, I want my heart to be calloused. And if you're here today and you're not saved, you, you can't say with complete confidence and assurance, I know when I die I'm going to heaven because I've been born again and God has changed my life. If you can't say that today, God loves you. He cares about you. But as we heard in Sunday school, your own sin condemns you 
and causes His wrath to abide on you. You must come to Him in faith and receive Him by faith. And we're here to help you with that. That's why we're here.